Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is Hebrews chapter 12, where my Bible is open. And I would invite you to be finding Hebrews chapter 12 in your Bible. We're going to read one verse there in just a moment that will really underline everything that we want to talk about and to think about for these next few minutes. And so let's all be looking together in the Word of God in Hebrews the 12th chapter. It is great to see everyone this morning. Thank you so much for being here. That lengthy list of -of out-of-towners. Actually, Josh really didn't even announce like half of the people that are out of town and on vacation. And so if you are a member here at Lakeside, thank you for choosing not to go on vacation this particular week. I'm so glad that you decided to be here. If you're visiting with us and you are on vacation this week, we're really glad that you've come to worship with us today and fill in some of those empty holes and uh, to be with us as we encourage each other and as we uh, exhort one another through song and through prayer and through the study of God's Word. Let's be focused on that right now. In Hebrews, the 12th chapter, I'm reading here in verse number 15. In Hebrews 12 and in verse 15, the Hebrew writer says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. In February of 2012, this sweet and smiling face, the face of Josie Anello, appeared in the obituary section of a central Florida newspaper. This 94-year-old lady had passed away peacefully at her residence. Now, I suspect that that little clip and clips like that, it's not unusual for any of us. We see these kinds of things all the time in our local paper or maybe as we're scrolling through the Internet. And largely, we pass over them unless it's somebody that we happen to know personally. But this particular obituary was not lightly passed over. Instead, it actually ended up becoming a national news story. You see, this obituary did not just contain the obligatory information about who Josie Anello was. No, it went on to say that she is survived by her son AJ, who loved and who cared for her. Sounds good so far. Her daughter Ninfa, who betrayed her trust. And her son Peter, who broke her heart. I'll give you three guesses as to which of those three children wrote that obituary. Internet bloggers, they immediately picked up on that story. And they began to float it around on social media. And eventually it gained enough momentum that it did in fact become a national news story. Follow-up investigations and follow-up stories revealed that the cause of all of this was that her children were locked in an ugly battle with each other over, can you guess it? Over her money. And so, one of those children angry and bitter against his siblings, he published that obituary in the local paper. Now I read that and I'll tell you what I thought. I thought, how sad. How sad that this lady's memory at the time of her death, it was overshadowed by this bitter and ugly grudge between her children. And I suppose it would be very easy for us this morning to read that and to hear about that and be disgusted for a moment and then just kind of move on with our lives. But I wanted us to actually think about that today because I think that that actually illustrates, well illustrates, serves as a powerful illustration of how bitterness, in the words of our text, Hebrews twelve fifteen, can cause trouble and defile many. 
We see a story like that and we recognize the Hebrew writer was dead on. He was dead on in his assessment of the effects of bitterness. It had defiled and caused trouble in that family. One writer described bitterness this way. He defined bitterness as settled hostility that poisons the whole inner man. And I really like that definition and I want you to hold on to that idea of poisoning because I'm going to come back to it at the end of the lesson. Bitterness begins with angry feelings. Angry feelings that we experience whenever we feel like we have been wronged or we have been wounded by someone in some way. But of course those angry feelings, that's just the beginning. Because instead of letting go of those feelings, bitterness says that we hang on to them. That we think about them constantly. We drum them up. We nurture them. We allow them to take deep root deep inside our hearts. And sometimes, you know this, I know this, sometimes people will actually nurse bitter grudges for years and years and years and will refuse any and all attempts at reconciliation. And even if they pretend to be willing to reconcile with the other person, They will impose such impossible conditions and standards that it really just goes to show they're really not interested in having peace with that person. No, what they're really interested in is holding on to that bitter grudge. How often, how often do we think of bitterness in this way? How often do we think of bitterness as this root that gets inside of us and it just spreads all throughout our inner person and it eats away at us from the inside out. How often do we think of bitterness as a sin, a sin that not only damages and destroys our relationship with others, but it is a sin, more importantly, that destroys our relationship with God. This morning we want to continue our year-long preaching theme By taking seriously the sin of bitterness. And what I'm most interested in, what I hope you are most interested in, is seeing what the Bible has to say about rooting that out. That we want it gone. We do not want it to take deep root in our lives. No, we do not want that to be a foothold that the devil can have in our lives that ultimately will cause us to lose our souls. All because... We didn't know how to deal with bitterness. The good news is, God has not left us clueless as to how to deal with bitterness. He's actually given us a very special book, a manual, if you will, on how to root out bitterness. And in the Bible, I believe, we are given the single greatest example outside of Jesus Christ of how to root out bitterness. And it's found... In Genesis, the 45th chapter, would you find Genesis 45 in your Bible this morning? That's where we'll be primarily for the rest of our time together. When you get to Genesis chapter 45, there you will find the example of a man by the name of Joseph. You know, the older I get, the more Joseph becomes my favorite Bible character. Let me just speed you up and get you to where we are at this point in the story. You'll remember that back in church, chapter 37 that Joseph had been terribly mistreated by his older brothers. They hated him because of their father's favoritism toward him. And so they plotted to actually put him to death. We're just going to kill him, get rid of him forever. That'll take care of him once and for all. 
But they think better of that. They're talked out of that. And so they decide instead, they see some traitors coming along the way, we'll just sell him instead of killing him, and at least we'll make a little bit of money out of this deal. And so they do, in fact, sell their brother into slavery. Joseph is then taken down to the land of Egypt. He's brought as a slave into Potiphar's house. There his master's wife begins to make sexual advances toward him. When Joseph refuses those advances, he is falsely accused and he is then thrown into prison. On top of that, while he's in prison, he tries to help some guys out that are there in the jail with the promise that they will help him get released sooner than expected. Instead, Joseph is forgotten. And Joseph remains in prison for two whole years. You just add all of that up. That is just a long series of tragedy and misfortune, tragedy and misfortune, all because of the wickedness and the jealousy of Joseph's older brothers. Eventually, though, by the grace of God, Joseph's circumstances start to turn around. By the time you get to chapter 41, Joseph has the opportunity to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. A dream about a terrible famine that would soon come upon all the land. And Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph's ability and with Joseph's faith that he ends up not only bringing him out of jail, but he appoints him as the chief official to stockpile food for seven years so that when the time of that famine finally comes, Egypt will be ready for it. In fact, Joseph is so good at his job, and Joseph sees to it that Egypt has so much food that when the famine finally does come, People from other countries come to Egypt to buy food from them. And this is where the story begins to get interesting. Because not only was Joseph in charge of stockpiling all the food, but he was also in charge of its distribution. And as he is doing that one day, a group of men come into him from a foreign country needing to buy food for themselves and for their family. And when those men come in to appear before Joseph... He recognizes that they are his brothers. The very guys who had sold him into slavery years before. All of that grief, all of that sorrow, all of that heartache, all that those brothers had done to him, these are the guys who had caused it. And here is Joseph now. He is a ruler in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. And all Joseph had to do was to say the word. He could have had those brothers killed. You know, Hollywood could not have scripted a more dramatic story than this. So what would Joseph do? What would he do now that he has this golden opportunity to settle this old score, to finally get even and to finally exact his revenge? Well, Genesis 45 tells us, read it with me, beginning in verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, He cried and said, make everyone go out from me. And so no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept out loud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. I imagine they were. I actually wish there maybe had been a camera back at that time to get the look on those guys' faces. Verse 4, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. 
For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And so it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Drop down to verse 14. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all of his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. What an amazing story. And what an amazing decision on Joseph's part. To have this golden opportunity to extract revenge from these wicked men, yet Joseph chooses to be forgiving instead. How does he do that? How was Joseph able to endure such contemptuous treatment without being overcome by bitterness? Maybe more to the point for us this morning. How can we do what he did? Well, I do believe that Joseph's story challenges us. It challenges us in a major way. And I think as we look at Genesis, the 45th chapter, we are challenged by his example in at least four different ways that will then help us to root out bitterness out of our own lives. And that all begins first and foremost with this first idea. And that is we are challenged whenever we first of all consider Joseph's wound. I want to start here by talking about Joseph's wound because I think oftentimes whenever we get angry, somebody does something bad to us and we get upset by that, I think many times what happens is we just lose perspective. Our mind just gets warped a little bit. We take something that maybe ought to be a small matter and we start inflating that until it is a big matter. Or maybe we take something that maybe is a big matter and we make it a bigger matter and we do that so that we can feel justified in our bitter feelings. We even start to tell ourselves things like, I have the right to be angry about this. I have the right to be mad about this. Even if that means being mad about it for days or weeks or months or years. Because what happened to me, you don't know. What happened to me, it is one of the worst possible things that could ever happen to any human being on the face of the entire earth in the history of ever. But, is it really? Is the wound that has been inflicted upon us, is it really that bad? I remember hearing recently, I was listening to a sermon, I remember a preacher talking about a Christian couple who he knew that had been mad since 1971 because some elder in the local church that they were members of had told their teenage son back in 1971 that he couldn't wait on the Lord's table until he got his hair cut. In fact, he went on to say that decades later, The father of that no longer teenage boy, but now a grown-up himself, the father was red-faced and shouting about that decades after the events of 1971. Now, I don't want to minimize something that was clearly a source of hurt feelings for that particular family. But can we agree that issues about hair length and waiting on the table from 40 years ago, that that's probably something we ought to get over? Can we agree that in the grand scheme of things, that that probably is not one of the major issues of the people of God? Come on now. Now I realize we hear stories like that and we think to ourselves, oh, come on, how foolish that is. 
How foolish to be bitter over something like that for so long. Okay. What bitter grudges then are you harboring? What are you still holding on to? And as you're thinking about that this morning, as you're processing that, I need you to think long and hard about Joseph in Genesis 45. Because I'll tell you, I've lived long enough now to where some people have hurt my feelings. And I have been wounded by the meanness and the ugliness of others. But you know what? When I look at Joseph's story and what they did to him, my wounds don't begin to compare to what he endured. How about you? These men, just think about it. These men, his brothers, they made him the merchandise of human trafficking. They subjected him to slavery. They put him in a position where he would be sexually harassed and ultimately thrown in jail to rot. Let me ask you, when's the last time somebody did any of those things to you? Raise your hand right now, I'll be amazed. That's what I thought. And as if that awful treatment in and of itself wasn't bad enough, I will remind you that the ones who perpetrated all of that evil against Joseph was his own flesh and blood, his own family. Think about how that would cause those wounds to sting even more. And yet, when we come to Genesis 45 and in verse 5, we do not see a man who's just chomping at the bit to finally get his retribution. Instead, we see a man who is eager to forgive. Joseph said to them, Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. What Joseph does is Joseph chooses not to be bitter, but instead to forgive his offenders. And I've got to tell you, I am challenged by his wound. Because if Joseph can forgive those men for what they did, if he can let go of bitterness and forgive and move on, then can't I? Can't you? You know, if Joseph's story won't do it for us, then maybe the story that Jesus told will do it for us. Do you remember that story Jesus told in Matthew, the 18th chapter, about the master and the two debtors? In Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 23, and then the verses that follow, Jesus tells a story about a servant who owed this huge, gigantic, unpayable debt to his master. And in the parable, that's us. That is our sins. And what did the master do for that man? He forgave him of all of it. But do you remember what that forgiven servant then went out and did next? He went out and found a fellow servant who owed him like two bucks. And he had that guy thrown in jail until he finally could pay it off. And we read that story and we are rightfully outraged at that kind of injustice. But I'm going to remind you what God is saying in that parable is that that is what it is like for you or for me to be forgiven so much by Him and then turn around and say, but I won't forgive others. That's the point of that parable. You know, I really can't talk about any of this without thinking about that terrible shooting that occurred back in 2006 in a little Amish schoolhouse in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Do you remember that news story? A fellow by the name of Charles Carl Roberts, he entered into a one-room schoolhouse armed with a gun, and he took hostage eight little girls, shot them, all eight little girls between the ages of six and thirteen, killing five of them before finally turning the gun on himself and committing suicide. Horrible story. Someone murdering innocent children in that way. Now we could sit and we could debate all day long about what makes one person's wound bigger than another person's wound. But I'll tell you this, I'm not sure that I can think of a much bigger wound 
that could ever be inflicted on a person than for someone to take the life of your child. Seems to be just about as bad as it gets. And yet, the members of that community, the family members of those little Amish girls, they publicly made it known that they had forgiven that man. That they had forgiven the very man who had murdered their children. In interviews afterwards, one of the parents of the children, he said the following. He said, we could choose to hate Charles Carl Roberts and be miserable and bitter for the rest of our lives. Or we could forego vengeance and forgive the man. And that is what we choose to do. That humbles me. And it reminds me. It reminds me not to ever overestimate the size of my wound. And furthermore, it reminds me that the choice to be bitter over my wound, that is my choice. Joseph's wound in Genesis 45 challenges us in a big way. But I'll tell you something else that challenges us in the story of Joseph. We are challenged secondly, whenever we consider and think about, it's going to say eventually, his initiative. Let me explain what I mean by that when I talk about Joseph's initiative. You know, sometimes problems between people that are having conflict, sometimes those problems don't get worked out because, well, because nobody will take the initiative to work the problem out. For example, has that ever happened to you in your marriage? You ever gotten into an argument with your spouse before, fussing and angry with your spouse? Don't anybody sit here and do this, because if you are, you are a liar, and I'll expect you on the front row during the invitation song. Sure, that happens to all of us in every marriage. There's always going to be some tension and some butting of heads. That goes on all the time. The question, though, is how long do you allow that conflict to go on? Allow that to go on for hours? For days? Maybe even for weeks? You want to know why that happens? Because each party in the marriage has determined and told themselves, I'm not going to go first. I'm not. The husband stubs up and gets all private and says, she is the one who did me wrong. She's the one who needs to come to me and apologize to me. And when she does that, then, then I'll forgive her. And of course, what's the wife thinking? She's thinking, well, that'll be the day. He's the one who did this. He's the one who started it. And so when he comes back groveling on his hands and knees, then we will have peace in this house. And so what happens is is we end up just at this marital stalemate. Those hours become days. And those days become weeks. Why? Because I refuse to make the first move. And I want you to know that happens not just in marriage. What about, for example, as well in in a local church setting? Brethren get mad at each other over something that happened not just days and weeks and months ago. They get mad over something that happened years in the past. And what do we do? We want to have peace and unity within the body of Christ. And so we start nudging those guys and say, hey, you guys need to get together. You guys need to get this worked out. And one of them stubs up and says, no, 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 no. He's the one who has to come to me. He has to go first. It's his obligation to make the first move. And you know what? People say that. Almost as if that's in the Bible somewhere. That the other guy is supposed to go first. Well, what does the Bible say about that? Well, interestingly enough, the Bible does say something about making the first move. Would you hold your place in Genesis? Look with me in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus does help us here. 
Jesus does talk about who's going to go first in times of conflict. In Matthew chapter 25, in the, or excuse me, Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, look in verse 23. In Matthew 5, 23, Jesus says that if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, you, you are the one who is the offender, you are the one who did something wrong to your brother, Verse 24, then leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. There you go, somebody says. If you are the offender, if you did the bad thing, then you have the obligation to make the first move, to go to that other person, case closed, end of discussion. Actually, no, that's not the end of the discussion. Because that's not all that Jesus has to say on this subject. Continue reading in Matthew, this time in chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, look in verse 15. In Matthew 18 and in verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, you, this time you are the offended party. Your brother did something to hurt you. What's Jesus say? If you're the one who's on the receiving end of someone else's hurt and meanness and ugliness, what do you do? Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, then sit around and wait for four decades until he comes and apologizes. Is that what your Bible says? No, that's not what your Bible says. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, look at the verb. Go! Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. There's a underscore that. It needs to be something done in private. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. I want you to please notice what Jesus has done between these two passages. Jesus has obligated both parties to take the initiative. There's none of this, I'm standing back here with my arms crossed, you go. No, I've got my arms crossed, you go. There's none of that going on here. Jesus wants peace, and so He obligates both parties to take the initiative. Now, as we turn back to Genesis chapter 45, who is it that takes the initiative in that particular story? It's not the brothers. It's not the offenders. No, verse 3 says they can't even talk. They are petrified at what's going on. It is Joseph who makes the first move. The offended. It is Joseph, verses 14 and 15, who goes and hugs his brother's necks and weeps with them. It is Joseph who is the one who is the offended party, yet it is Joseph who is the one who takes the initiative to get it worked out. I want you to listen to me very carefully. It is natural that we will have periods of conflict with each other. But what is unnatural is to allow those conflicts to boil and to fester and to stew for months and for years unresolved. And not only is that unnatural, but it is ungodly. It is sinful. It is against the will of God. And so Joseph's example. His example challenges us to be the one who is proactive here. And I'm going to root out bitterness by being the one who takes initiative. I'm going to make the first move. And I believe that that is furthered even more in this third idea. And that is when we are challenged, when we think about Joseph's kindness. As you look at Genesis 45, it is notable to me that Joseph, he actually does more than just forgive his brothers. He does more than just release them from that debt. When we were reading earlier, I skipped over verse 9, but can we go and grab those verses now? Beginning in verse 9, what's Joseph say? Verse 9, he says, hurry 
And go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children. Who's that? Who's his children? Who's, who's Jacob's children? Those brothers. The very brothers who did this evil to him. You bring them, you bring your children, and your children's children, and your flocks and your herds, and all that you have. And there I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. I am so impressed that Joseph does not merely say, Okay, guys, I forgive you. I'm not going to hold this against you anymore. I wish you well on your journey. No, Joseph does so much more than that. He actually takes it a step further by reaching out to those brothers. He is kind to them. He says, I want you to get your yourselves and get your families and all of you all come up here and let me take care of you. Let me make sure that you do not come to ruin by this famine. I am so impressed by that. And I think there's something we ought to learn from that. You know, sometimes, even when a matter between brothers, a conflict is, is settled, sometimes there still remains some, some tension in that relationship. Do you, you know what I'm talking about here? Have you ever had a problem with somebody? And so you had this big, big summit, this big meeting together. And everybody said, I'm sorry, and we all hugged, and we all worked it all out, and then everybody, everybody went their separate ways, everybody went home. But then the next Wednesday night, you come to church, and when you passed each other in the foyer in the church building, it was like, whew, that was uncomfortable. Glad that's over with. Let me find somebody else to talk to, because I don't want to have to do that again. That was too awkward. Can I tell you what that tension is? That tension is the very soil from which that bitter plant grows back up. And if that tension continues long enough, it will become a wedge that drives us further and further and further apart. Have you ever experienced that before? Do you know what I'm talking about here? Listen to me. That is not good. Well, how do you fix that? How do you fix that tension, that awkwardness in the relationship? Well, Joseph shows us. Joseph shows us that you fix that with kindness. That what I need to do is I need to start figuring out how I can reach out to that other person and try in some way to repair and reestablish that relationship. They're sick and in the hospital? Then you go and see them. You send them a card. You take food to their family. Do they maybe need some help around the house? Then you be the first one to volunteer and to go to help them. On Sunday night, when you see them at services, you be the one to go to them and say, hey, let's go out and have a cup of coffee together. Let's just sit down and visit. You come over to our house and let's just, let's just talk and let's just, you know, spend some time with each other. Somebody says, as I'm suggesting all that, saying, oh, that ain't gonna happen. That would just be so uncomfortable. That would be so awkward. Like the awkwardness in the foyer at the church building isn't uncomfortable enough. Like doing all that dodging and avoiding and trying to evade that person while you see him at church. Like that isn't awkward enough. Come on. Reaching out. It is no more awkward than trying to keep and to maintain the tension. The Bible teaches us that the way that we overcome that stuff is with acts of kindness. Hold your place in Genesis again. Look in Romans chapter 12. 
In Romans chapter 12, Paul discusses here how it is that we deal with someone who would be considered an enemy or an adversary of some sort. In Romans chapter 12, look with me beginning in verse 17. In Romans 12 verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge for yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Don't you wish that Paul stopped right there? As we look at those three verses, we can say, well, I can do that. Somebody did something wrong to me. I'm not interested in paying them back. I'm not trying to retaliate. I don't have an urge to you know, go punch them in the face. If that's all there is to this, then I can do that. A-OK. But Paul didn't stop there. Look at the very next verse, verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by, for so by, by, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That, that is where it gets hard. Because what the Holy Spirit says is that if you are at odds with somebody else, you got to do something about that. You need to find something good to do for them. So let me make this point very, very personal before I leave it. You got tension with somebody because of some past offense? Maybe you're not in an all-out war with them, with them right now. Maybe it's not, you know, at this big boiling point like it was maybe once before. But maybe just things really aren't right in the relationship. What are you doing about that? Find something good to do this week to reach out to that person, to show them some measure of kindness. Boy, everybody was looking up there and I was wondering what was going on behind me. Wow. Finally this morning. Good thing I didn't have so much on the PowerPoint that it was going crazy. Finally this morning, as we look at the example of Joseph, and as we think about the challenges that he sets before us to root out bitterness... I think maybe the greatest challenge of all is whenever we consider this fourth and final thing, and that is whenever we consider Joseph's perspective. In fact, I think that this may actually be the most remarkable quality that Joseph possessed of all, his perspective about things. Because Joseph, instead of being focused and fixated on the evil that his brothers had done, Joseph is focused and fixated on what God had accomplished with his brother's evil. Look again in the text. Look in verse 5. Go back to Genesis 45. In verse 5 again. There Joseph says, Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Drop down to verse 7. He repeats it again. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Joseph says that his presence in Egypt and the role that he played there, it provided a pathway for actually protecting and preserving and saving his family. And I would even add here that even in the bigger and broader picture, to save the family of promise, the family through whom the Messiah would come. You see, instead of standing before his brothers and rehearsing all of the bad stuff that you did to me, let me tell you about how I was hurt by what you did. Instead, Joseph is focused on all the good that God had done in this terrible circumstance. 
Joseph chooses to have a positive perspective. Now once again, I'll ask, is there something we ought to learn from that? I believe there is. That may be one of the ways to help us get beyond the bitter feelings that we experience when someone has wronged us is to try and find some positive. Try and find some benefit, some silver lining, some good thing that resulted from our wound. And I'll go ahead and tell you, this one, this is a mark of spiritual maturity. I do not expect a babe in Christ to be able to do this last thing, you know, right out of the gate. But for those of us who've been doing this Christianity thing for a very long time, We ought to be pushing ourselves hard to develop this kind of perspective. That even in the bad things that people do to me, I can find something good. I can find something that will help me in my walk with the Lord. For example, maybe somebody has, maybe somebody has unfairly criticized your children. And as a result of that, that forced you to reevaluate your parenting. You know, there are few things that can make a mom or a dad more upset than for someone to say something unkind about their children. True? I think that's probably true. And you know what? It is particularly difficult whenever that criticism is unfair and unfounded. But you know what? It happened. It was said. And maybe that criticism forced you to just take a step back. And in your anger, you started thinking, well, is what they said true? Am I maybe not doing right by my kids? And as a result, it made you reevaluate your parenting. Let me ask you, is that a good thing? To step back and to reevaluate how you raise your children? Absolutely that's a good thing. And so how about, instead of being bitter and angry at this insensitive person who said this mean thing to me, instead, I'll just be thankful that I was provoked to think about how I parent my child. Or how about this? Maybe someone slighted you in a time of need. Maybe when you really needed somebody to come and to volunteer of their energies and of their time, you needed somebody to help you, but nobody showed up. But what that has done is that has now made you extra sensitive about that. So that whenever someone else in the congregation has a need, you're right there. You are right on top of it. You just know. You know the pain that is caused when nobody shows up. And you know what? You're always going to be the person who does show up for someone else. Let me ask you, is that a good thing? That you have now been provoked to be especially sensitive to the needs of others? Absolutely that's a good thing. And so what I need to do is, instead of being angry and bitter toward all my brethren who let me down, instead I'm just going to be happy. That God was able to use that experience to make me way more sensitive to the needs of others. How about we choose to focus on that? I will confess to you that this perspective business, it is not always easy. In fact, sometimes maybe the best thing that I'll ever be able to say about a situation is, you know, dealing with this difficult person has really taught me a lot about patience. It's taught me about dealing with the difficult people and how to bear up under that and to be patient and steadfast. And you know what? I'm just going to focus on that. That's a good life lesson for me. That's a good perspective to have. Because after all, just stop and think about it. What's the alternative? If I don't focus on the good, what's the alternative? The alternative is to hold a bitter 
and angry grudge. A grudge and a bitterness that I will remind you at the end of the day really just hurts me. In fact, I think that's the saddest part about bitterness. That those who harbor it actually think that they are hurting others. As someone wiser than I once pointed out, bitterness is like drinking poison and then waiting for the other person to die. How ridiculous. How foolish that is. Because the one who gets hurt the most is me whenever I choose to drink the poison of bitterness. And so it is for that reason that the Apostle Paul comes along in Ephesians chapter 4. I should have known it wasn't going to work. In Ephesians 4 and in verse 31, Paul says, Let all bitterness be put away from you. Put it out. you got to get that out. And as though Paul anticipates that that is going to be a tremendous challenge for us, he then adds in verse 32, he says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Right there, Paul's laying down the trump card. Because if ever I am struggling to practice those principles that we see evidenced in the life of Joseph, then all I need to do is I need to remember that I have been forgiven of so much by God. And what an insult then it would be for me to not forgive others of the far lesser offenses that have been committed against me. May God help each and every one of us to root out bitterness from our hearts so that we are not destroyed by its deadly poison. Perhaps there is someone here this morning who even as I have been speaking, you recognize you are eat up with bitterness. And you recognize that. And you recognize furthermore that it is destroying you. It is defiling you and causing trouble as the Hebrew writer talks about. I tell you, there is only one antidote, one remedy for that. And that's repentance. To have a change of mind, a change of heart that then leads to a change of attitude and a change of life, a change of action. Can we help somebody this morning to put away bitterness or to put away whatever sin it may be once and for all? It may be, though, that you're sitting here this morning and you're not even a Christian. That's the real problem that's going on here. And what you are in need of is you are in need of the thing that Paul talked about there in Ephesians 4.32. You are in need of the forgiveness that God offers in Christ Jesus our Lord. great thing about that is, is that all things are ready. All things have been made convenient for you to do just that this very hour. To confess your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and to be buried with Him in baptism. To have any and every and all sins washed away. Can we help you today to be in a right relationship with God? I'm going to encourage everybody to probably need to get our songbooks out for this because this thing's just not cooperating today. Let's get our songbooks out. Be ready to sing number 304. And if you are subject to the invitation, would you take advantage of it? Do it right now while we stand and while we sing.